thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And welcome to today's show. We've got some amazing stuff to talk to you about. I miss Cindy's all jam-packed with more surprises for us. And we've also just been having a conversation that's kind of grossing me out, and we thought that we might actually bring it up for all of you guys. So... A couple of weeks ago, I was having a chat with our Kimmy, and she was telling me how she does the whole, oh, my goodness, the oil pulling, where you're swishing around coconut oil, it's getting mixed in with your spit, and you do that for a half an hour. And it, it, it kind of makes me dry reach, just the thought of it, and I tried it. With all my sincerity, I tried it, and I put a tablespoon of oil in my mouth with some peppermint oil, thinking that would be the go, and swished it around, swished it around, and then after about a minute, I was ready to, I was gagging, (laughs) I was gagging on this dreadful sensation, and then I brushed my teeth, and then my toothbrush was covered in the oil, and oh, it was all dreadful, and then the next morning, I thought, no, no. You hang in there, girlfriend. You try this again. And I tried it again and in it goes and out it came. Like almost instantly I was like, and I know, I know, I have issues when it comes to snot and it comes to spit, I have issues. So I know that there's a mental drama going on there with this. But when I just raised it for Kim and Cindy, they were like, oh, no, you just do this, you just do that, you just do this, you just do that. So we thought we'd share that with you while I sit here and recompose myself because my stomach has been retching for a little bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I'm, look, to be honest with you, I really get the whole thing with, with coconut pulling and why people feel it is so you know, it's weird or it's gross or it doesn't feel right. I won't tell you what my husband thought he felt it was like and therefore he can't. Um, so I, I don't know. For me it was more <laughs> when I started, when I had my mercury fillings, the last of them taken out, my holistic doctor said you must oil pull for at least 15, 20 minutes a day for the next month every day as your body is detoxifying. And that got me into questioning what it's really all about and what it does. And with the coconut oil in particular being very highly antimicrobial and antibacterial, just by swishing that around in your mouth, it is actually an attraction for all bacteria and toxins to be withdrawn from in between the teeth and the gums and the back of the throat. And the more you swirl and swoosh, the better it actually is for getting in between all the gums. And it's very healing to your gums, particularly if you've just flossed. It's a really nice way to help seal and also um, treat the gums with its high antiseptic, antibacterial and antimicrobial uh, qualities. But the thing that really made it easier for me was adding two drops of peppermint or two drops of spearmint oil to it. And it gives it a whole refreshing and quite different feeling in the mouth. Particularly peppermint is a lot stronger and the spearmint seems to be slightly sweeter. 
but it really makes you feel like you're giving your whole insides of your mouth a good lube and oil change, if, if I was honest. And I think the <laughs> nice thing about it when you, when you do it first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, while you're getting dressed, while you have your shower, and then I've been known to have it even after my shower and then come out and get the children's breakfast ready or things like that. And, I, you know, sometimes it's been in my mouth for up to 30 minutes, which is ideal, apparently. The key that I have learned is that you do not spit the coconut oil down your sink, as obviously coconut oil can harden. So I put mine straight into the to the toilet and it gets flushed away the next time someone uses it. So um, it's just a really, I think it's one of the best things. The key also is that you must brush your teeth as soon as you have finished oil pulling um, because the remainder of any of the toxins or anything that has been withdrawn from the mouth um, is best freshly washed and brushed away uh, as soon as you've finished. So, look, I've been doing it for months now, um, coming up to a, nearly a year, um, and there's very few days that I miss. It's become such an important part of my morning ritual that I actually can't imagine life without it. I even travel now with a container with coconut oil in it because a lot of hotels, a lot of hotels don't actually um, know that you're doing it. So, you know, I mean, just don't know that you're doing it, don't know that they stock it. So for me, it's important that I travel with it. Oh. It's so yeah, funny no. to hear you. Well, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we do we do it similar, but we do it different as well. So uh, when I first started to do it, I struggled. I really, really struggled with it, and um, I had a hard time doing it for as long as they tell you to do it. So I decided to do it bit by bit, step by step, incrementally pick it up as part of my routine in the morning um, and I read the book The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg and um, he talks about how back in the 1920s, 1930s when they were just starting to bring toothpaste into the marketplace, how they marketed it to the American people because that's where it all started with this marketing campaign and the marketing campaign created a habit and the power of a habit that everybody now in the Western world believes that they need toothpaste on their toothbrush in order to clean their teeth. So when I heard that, I like to rebel, and I went, well, I'm not buying toothpaste again. That's it for me. So I started to brush my teeth with coconut oil. I thought, well, if you're meant to swirl with coconut oil, maybe I'll just start brushing my teeth with coconut oil. But I would always brush away from the sink. I would never use the sink as a dumping ground for the coconut oil. I actually use my compost bin. So I would walk around the house kind of brushing my teeth with this coconut oil and then I would finish off with it going into the compost bin and then rinse my mouth off. So that's how I started. Then when I would get up in the morning, I would put, once I got used to that process, I would get up in the morning and I would put a teaspoon of coconut oil in my mouth, not a tablespoon, but a, a smaller amount. And I would swirl that round and I found that I would go off and do things. So I would um, go around the outsides of the house and if there was been a storm, I'd pick up all of the, the tree um, limbs that were down or something like that. Or I'd pick up the animal droppings or um, I might just do a bit of a sweep. So I would be doing things while I was doing it so I forgot the time. I'd then go inside and I'd 
get my clothes on, which was usually my togs to go swimming. And just before I'm about to go out the door, so this could be 20, 25, 30, sometimes 30 minutes, I would um, then spit it into the compost bin and then brush my teeth just with a toothbrush. I don't, I don't use toothpaste anymore. And then Kimmy taught me about the peppermint oil or some beautiful um, one of her essential oils. So I started to add that to it. But I also found if I had it way too long in my mouth that it would just get too much in my mouth. And so I'd spit a little bit into the compost bin and continue to swirl. So if you think it's getting too much, you just take a little bit out but continue to swirl. So these were, you know, they were the, the things that I did in order to be able to build up from hardly being able to do it like you, Karen, where a minute was just making me puke to just slowly making it um, a part of my habit and a part of how I did things. And now I can't imagine doing my teeth any other way. And I must admit, somebody said to me the other day, gee, your teeth are really white. Um, and I, yeah, and I was noticing that my teeth were getting a bit of discoloration, you know, because I'm in my 50s, I like to drink coffee, and they're getting discoloration. But since I've been doing this oil pulling every day without fail, um, yeah, people are kind of going, wow, your teeth are really white. And I've never had anybody say that about my teeth. So it was it was quite um, funny. And the other thing is always have a good quality coconut oil. Don't have one... Like a lot of coconut oil, um, if it has been um, refined, it may have um, not the properties that you want for coconut oil. So make sure you have good coconut oil. And I can really recommend a really good one. It's called Changing Habits. <laughs> you know what's interesting yeah, is, is from a well, the, mm. the, the beautiful thing about um, oil pulling, if people are interested where it came from, is it's actually an ancient Ayurvedic um, ritual used for, you know, for detoxing. Um, and it's, so it's not just for getting rid of the bacteria in the mouth. It's actually why they call it pulling is because um, it actually pulls a lot of the, even parasites and any bacteria and via the lymph system, it is actually creating a wonderful um, healing process that goes on in the body. Um, most people find when they oil pull, if you're someone who has a lot of mucus congestion or a lot of sinus issues or things like that, particularly when you add peppermint or spearmint oil to it, you start to find that those sorts of conditions can start alleviating. And here's the biggie for those of you that do have your, um, you know, your mercury fillings with, withdrawn. You really must be oil pulling. Um, it is absolutely critical in the in the process of the healing of that. And make sure when you do get your mercury fillings out that you do go to a dentist that has the proper extractor fans, and they're quite holistic in the way that they do it. It's it's actually quite a process when you go to people that really care about the mercury removal of fillings. So be aware of that. But the other thing that's really interesting is that because of the, the saliva and what happens with your saliva combined with the oil, it actually acts like a, a, a wonderful lubricant that is, is a binder, and that's what the parasites and bacteria will actually adhere to. Um, it also strengthens your teeth. So if you've had wisdom teeth removed or you've had to have any form of dental health or anything at all like that, it is absolutely brilliant for that. 
um, and and some people might not realise that the because of the yes, it's antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory and antiseptic. But also coconut oil has very high enzymatic action, which is why it's so good that it takes the not-so-good bacteria and yet enhances the live bacteria, the good bacteria, and the enzymatic activity that goes on in the mouth. I mean, when you start really investigating, just Google um, coconut pulling or oil pulling, and you'll see there is so much information in there about the way and the reasons why they've done it for so, so long. I guess another thing to remember is that you don't gargle with the oil. You don't actually put it down into the back of the throat. It's not designed for gargling because of all the toxic material that's gathering in your mouth. Um, some people like to say to use it as a time to practice breathing through your nose. And and I found the real challenge when I'm pulling and I'm in the shower and I've washed my hair. Yeah, you don't realize how much you breathe through your mouth when you are washing your hair and all the water is running over your head. Oh my gosh, that was a challenge. So it's really, really good to practice the art of breath and breathing when you're doing this through the nose. And if any of you do yoga or Pilates or any of those sorts of Tai Chi, Qigong, any of those where you practice the art of breath, by you practice it very well using the diaphragmatic thing by breathing just through the nose. So it's a really, it's more than just cleaning the teeth. Most people didn't, don't even need to clean their teeth afterwards, by the way. That was another thing that my dentist told me, that because of the oil pulling, like you said, Cindy, it's actually getting all the toxins out. There's no need to brush. Um, that's just through habit, brushing our teeth. So I guess through culture and civilization, this was their way of brushing their teeth without literally having a toothbrush. There's not many caveman drawings I've noticed them holding a reach toothbrush or something in their hands. So, <laughs> so maybe that's what it was used for. But yeah, all you have to do is rinse with water um, and have some beautiful um, water and, and obviously uh, just relax afterwards if you can. There's there's such a ritual. If you look at the ritual in Ayurvedically. Now, here's the other clincher you may not know about, which I'm really excited to say what helps with pulling. Not only will people tell you that your, 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 your teeth are looking whiter, but your skin heals. So for particularly for people that suffer with psoriasis, eczema, and dermatitis, did you guys both know that it is through oil pulling that is one of the quickest, most effective ways to support the skin into healing because it works so closely with the lymphatic system? Did you both know that one? That's, that's amazing. Well, actually, Kenny, having you said that, they're doing a microbiome summit at the moment worldwide, 33 experts talking on it. And one of the experts just a couple of days ago was a dentist and he was talking about the whole oil pulling and um, the importance of the bugs in the mouth and that by using the toothpaste and using the, um, you know, the those what are those drinks people gargle with them, um, mouthwashes, mm. by using them you are destroying that microbiome which then in turn starts to destroy the rest of the microbiome, the gut, which then we know affects the skin. So... By changing your habit, what we're talking about now, by changing it to where we have a natural antimicrobial, antiparasitic, antiviral, antibacterial um, product, by doing that, we're actually not uh, completely stripping something by using uh, something like an antibiotic, which is 
what is in these washes, they're antibacterial. And um, and it, it's a lot it's a lot better on the whole system. But he actually talks about the importance of those bugs in our mouth and that when we try to destroy them, and you've seen an ad for it where it destroys, what, 99.8% of the bugs in your mouth? Mm. You know, mm. that, yeah, that, that when we, the, the cheeks explode? Mm. Um, it's not good. He, he says it's one of the worst things that we can do for our teeth and our gums and the rest of our gut. So by doing what you're talking about and doing the coconut pulling, we're actually um, helping the gums and the teeth as well as the gut. And then now you've just mentioned the skin. So mm. it's wonderful. And when you look at what's in toothpaste and when you look at the ingredients that are in our um, mouthwashes, they're not – they're colours and they're artificial sweeteners and there's um, – what, what's one of the ones in toothpaste, Kimmy? Is it – Sodium lauryl sulfate to make it foam. Yep, definitely there. Yeah, and there's triple sand. There's all sorts of things in toothpaste. It's actually, um, you know, if and then and then let's talk about the animal testing that goes on with most big brand toothpastes. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why not to. I use one called Earth, which is actually almost a brown green looking toothpaste, which freaks most people out. <laughs> um, but I love it. I absolutely love it. And by the way, if you can't handle um, coconut oil, then um, it did used to be done with sesame oil. Have you have you heard of that, Cindy? Uh, do you know what any other oils would be would, good to use? Yeah, I think black sesame and sesame, and I've heard people do it with olive. And so you can do it with other oils, but I tried it with olive and I didn't have any coconut oil left in the pantry. I'm sorry. I'm, I much prefer the coconut. That, but then... I've created my own habit, you know, so people have created a habit by doing mouthwashes and toothpastes and, you know, all of that stuff. I just created a habit where I love coconut oil. But, yeah, you can use uh, other oils and, and maybe in the winter when the oils are a bit hard, you may want to use those oils. But I just, yeah, I've created this habit and, and I absolutely love it. Actually, what was really funny, Kimmy, we asked me your neighbour um, mm. And uh, his wife has just had a huge operation for um, a skin cancer on her face, and she she she's just she's been through quite a lot. You know, they've they've taken out a lot, and thank goodness she's got a plastic surgeon working on her, and she's doing really well. But we were also talking about um, this microbiome summit that's going on. And we were talking about the importance of skin bugs as well. Now I, I think Karen Smith at this point has probably fainted, but she's going to faint even more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting very quietly in the background. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have talked about this often, but the soap on the skin and the destruction of the bacteria on the skin is also something that they're talking about in this summit. And it's another habit. We think we've got to lather up a new soap on all of our skin and um, and we know Karen's routine, don't we? <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a clean bean. <laughs> yeah, clean But it's funny. Sorry, sorry, asking you what was the um, there's a there's a there's a whole symbiotic relationship between the bacteria on our skin and and how that relates. And when we're lathering creams and lotions and putting all sorts of 
um, cleansers and lathering soaps and you are constantly disrupting the pH level but you're also really upsetting that uh, bacterial culture that sits on the surface of the skin. They reckon we are over cleaning everything at the moment, our mm. bodies especially and when you think about how many products and cleaning products and then personal care products that we're using, um, one of the courses that I'm doing at the moment, an environmental toxins course, they reckon that is very closely linked just as much as diet to things like autoimmune disease just because we're over-cleaning ourselves with, and it makes sense really what you're just saying about the microbiome. If we're upsetting the, I guess the microbiome on, is it is it called the microbiome on the outside of the skin as well, like on the on the skin? Yeah, well? yeah. The microbiome is the collective amounts of bacteria that lay within the orifices, um, surfaces, um, places where there's a barrier between the inside and the outside world, and that could be the skin or the gut. So the microbiome is the collective bacteria um, flora that we have um, that we live symbiotically with as long as it's in um, – it's not in dysbiosis, as long as it's doing healthy and it's doing well. It's when it becomes in dysbiosis where – which is like dis-ease, it's dysbiosis – um, it then creates problems, and that can be skin, ears, mouth, vaginally, um, gut. All of that can then create problems. And if, if there is a, um, a dysbiosis in the vaginal bacteria, you'll get thrush. If there's a dysbiosis in the gut bacteria, you'll get diarrhea or constipation or bloating or severe pain. And if it's in the ears, you might get itchy ears um, or ear infections. And if it's on the skin, you might um, have problems with, uh, number one, um, burning of the skin for only a small amount of time out. It could also, because that protects us from the sun, um, it could also be skin cancers. So they're actually looking at this amazing microbiome that we have and it's linked to us wiping it out with antibiotics, antibacterials, all of those, by wiping it out and what the ramifications are to our health. And the microbiome summit that is, is playing at the moment is, I think it's seven days, and it's, look, there's just heaps and heaps and heaps. So um, it's, it's, it's 33 experts worth listening to. You may have to buy it by the time they listen to us. Um, because it will be. Um, I've the, actually the, the I've free, ordered it. I've well, ordered it online for ninety nine dollars or ninety seven dollars, and you get all of those speakers, all the transcribes of it. It just mm. means that I get to listen to it at a time when I, you know, either in the car or when I'm on my own or in my own time. And you know, for ninety seven dollars to listen to how many did you say 30, 30 plus speakers? Thirty three. Thirty three speakers. That's a university in itself. Yeah, and four of them are um, in my documentary. So I was very thrilled to see, you know, them showing up in all sorts of places. I actually see them a lot because they're, they're at the forefront of understanding this and understanding the importance of it. And, you know, one of the things that have really become clear, and I'm seeing it everywhere now, and, and you know, last year when I was doing all my interviews with everybody is – the chemicals in our foods, the chemicals on our skincare, the chemicals in our mouthwashes, our toothpaste, our shampoos, our conditioners, the chemicals that um, are sprayed in our agriculture, the chemicals that are on our 
lawns and um, playgrounds and forests and are destroying the very essence of our ability to be healthy, which is that microbiome. And and one is um, glyphosate. Now, can you say that, Nikki? Glyphosate. <laughs> okay. I hope you're still with us, darling, after speaking about all these parasites and things. But but when um, Cindy interviewed me for her documentary, for some reason I just could not say the word glyphosate, which is an ingredient, obviously, in Roundup. Um, And and you should have said we should have done a a blooper takeout, but it was glycophosate. I just could not say it. So it was just amazing. And yet... I had the privilege of watching an early airing of Cindy's documentary last night. Just uh, she wanted some feedback. And I tell you what, it is a very, very big topic that a lot of those health leaders all spoke about, Cindy. Yeah, they, they all spoke about glyphosate and, and how it's destroying our bacteria, which is what you know, helps us do so many processes and it's all linked to fructose malabsorption, it's linked to gut issues, it's linked to gluten intolerance, dairy intolerance, uh, you know, because we've lost the ability to digest these foods. We're killing off the very bacteria that helps us digest these foods such as bifidus. And I think Stephanie Seneff says it beautifully. She says, you know, so many foods are seen as toxic and poison that we used to eat for generations, for thousands of years, and people see them as toxic. But perhaps it's not the food that's toxic, but what they're, they're putting into our food, that's something in the food that's that's actually toxic. And, mm. uh, you know, and I, you know what's interesting is when I um, interviewed Stephanie Seneff and she started to talk about glyphosate and Roundup and stuff like that, it was kind of I had heard it, but I hadn't heard it like she talked about it. But, you know, every day when I scroll through my magazine of Facebook, I see another thing about it. So Brother Life just put something up recently and it was called Maybe you aren't maybe you aren't gluten intolerant, maybe you're poison intolerant. I love that title. I just went, Of course. This is, you know, this is that was the perfect title. So it says, is it gluten or is it glyphosate that's your problem? So I feel like my documentary, which is out, you know, in April, early April, you know, it's it's cutting edge, it's hitting people because they've heard it a couple of times now, they're going to hear it again, and they're going to start to say in their community, is this being used on our sports fields? Do we use this on our lawn? Is this being used, you know, to spray the weeds along our roadsides where our children are? What other foods are they spraying glyphosate on? Not just wheat, but maybe they're spraying it on other things like our vineyards, like our stone fruit, like our berries, you know. So, or between the aisles where they don't want the weed of the of the in the agriculture between you know the um, the vines. So when you look up, and if anybody wants to do this, go to um, uses for glyphosate or uses for Roundup. You'll be just stunned where they are spraying this and um yeah it's it's quite scary but everybody's talking about it it's wonderful it's wonderful it's a it's awakening i'm seeing if kaz is coming in yet (laughs) (laughs) 
She's still got a jar of coconut oil looking at her right in the face wondering, how am I going to get that in my mouth? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I, you know, I've come a long way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a slow learner, that's all. (laughs) Okay, but I want to ask you, Karen, why is, tell us, because a lot of people out there are going to feel exactly the same, just to bring it back before we go on to any more about glyphosates, but tell us what it is you don't like about oil pulling and what puts you off. <laughs> right. Well, it's slimy. <laughs> and I don't like hearing anything slimy in my mouth. <laughs> And I also don't and I also don't like the saliva accumulation. It just it just makes me want to gag. Because I, I just have an issue with snot and spit. I just don't like it. So if it's in my mouth of all places, heaven forbid. So I, I I'm listening to everything with such intent and I'm so hopeful for tomorrow morning. I shall not give in I shall keep trying I shall I definitely will I'll keep trying it's Um, worth it and you know the other thing you get used to it too don't you think Cindy in fact I've got to the point now where if I don't do it, I really miss it. I totally hear what you're saying about the the slimy, and particularly when it's colder and you actually put it into your mouth solid and then you've got to wait for the warmth of your mouth to kind of melt it and even that feeling is really weird. But I get over that by getting into the shower, knowing that I can't spit it down the pipes. So now I at least have to be in there for a couple of minutes while I have my shower and then by the time I hop out of the shower, you're actually used to it. And the saliva takes the sliminess away a bit because it, it almost you get enough saliva and balance in there that it's just like having a um, maybe even a, a non-sweetened mouthful of honey that you're gar- that you're you're swirling around in your mouth. That's that's really with a bit of saliva and a bit of the thickness of honey, except without the sweetness. That's kind of what it feels like. So I don't. I think I think you can do it. You think I can? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just start okay. with that toothbrush. Just, just do the toothbrush with it. Um, and if you want to get the coconut oil off your toothbrush because it's grossing you out, just use a little bit of hot water and just mm-hmm. rinse it in there. Like have a cup of hot water right beside you and just rinse it in there. Then it's clean and you're ready to go again. And then do the teaspoon and add the peppermint oil like Kimmy said and do a little bit at a time and then – I don't know. And do other things, Karen. You know, do it. Get my mind off it. I started started with the toothpaste. um, I replaced the toothpaste with the natural one, um, an Ayurvedic one, and I dipped my toothbrush into salt brine and then I put the natural toothpaste on and then I put the peppermint oil on. So it's a three-step process in the morning and Matt thinks I'm absolutely crazy. But it's fabulous. It's the best. And, and my, teeth are, my teeth are whiter and my breath is fresher for so much longer than if I use toothpaste. So now, if I'm, like if I'm travelling and I've got to, and I haven't taken my salt water and my toothpaste and my peppermint and I've just got the old, you know, McLean's toothpaste or Colgate toothpaste in the bag, I use it and I think, oh, good grief, that was just horrendous. So now, actually, I, don't, I never travel without my little combo. 
and that's that's pretty fabulous. Yeah, I'm really I'm really loving it, and I've started putting. Um, I've got a beautiful all natural body wash. And I've started putting peppermint oil into the body wash. And, oh, my goodness, it's lovely. Like it's just, you know, creates like a lovely little tingle through like on my skin. It's just gorgeous. I'm loving it. And I've got a – I've just made up another one um, last night actually because I ran out and I made up another one with wild orange. I'm looking forward to that because I love, I love the smell of wild orange in a steamy shower. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's just Christmas. Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm getting there. I'm definitely getting there, and I'm definitely aware, and I'm I'm definitely conscious of it. It's just there are some things that are giant leaps for people like me. <laughs> I think I think you know it's, it's it's what's good about this is that we're all different, and everybody will will be able to relate to one of us, and. You know, the fact that you're doing it, Karen, will give people hope that are like you. <laughs> and, and very serious because we need to start changing this. I think, you know, we have disregarded the importance of what we throw down our sink, our social conscience, um, our environmental conscience. Thank goodness for people like you, Kaz, um, because it gives people like you hope. <laughs> I mean, you know what? <laughs> I actually think we need to have more social consciousness. I also think we need more environmental consciousness. And I think these conversations help people with ways to do this. And um, what we're throwing down our sinks, what we're throwing, um, you know, when we shower, when we brush our teeth, when we gargle something, when we take medications, when we pee, when we – there are so many ways that we are – affecting our environment and we're not thinking about what's happening to it and where it's ending up and one of the books that I've been reading has really pushed this home to me and it's so funny because I'm in the middle of doing my you know my 60 acres and I'm cleaning it up and everybody who comes to me they all say oh we'll just cut and poison I said what are you going to poison with and they go round up and I go but I'm at the top of the hill. My water goes to the next property, which then goes to the next property that ends up in the Obiobi River, which then goes to the Mary River and out to the ocean. Why would I do that? Why would I poison my land and then poison everything after me? Because I'm at the top of the range. I'm at the top of the hill. This is where the water sources are. And even my people that are called echo goat people or echo this people, they are just, it's the safest thing to use. So I'm in this dilemma. I won't use the poison, but I'm in this dilemma of, okay, I'm at the top of the water table here, at the water point here. What am I going to do? Am I going to protect my riparian rights? Am I going to protect my water so that the cattle can't get into it or the goats or the pigs or the chickens, whatever I choose to use? I don't want them in there polluting it and therefore polluting my neighbours and and so on down the track. And what's really funny is while I'm thinking about this, Richard Feidler on his beautiful conversations with Richard Feidler on the ABC, which is a podcast that people can download, um, he interviews this gentleman by the name of um, Bruce Pascoe and um, I couldn't stop listening to the interview, it goes for an hour, and it's on February the 1st, 20, 
15. So if anybody wants to go and find this interview, it's to me it's one of the most profound interviews I've listened to in a long time. So I'm driving along listening to the interview and I'm going, wow, wow, no. You know, so it, it was one of those where I was blown away by the information and also I realised that what I had been formally taught in my Australian history, you know, time at school was completely wrong, was completely um, lies and cover-ups and I was furious. I was absolutely furious. So I thought, right, I'm going to get his book, I'm going to read everything that Bruce Pascoe is talking about. And so finding the book wasn't easy because it was out of print. Now, it wasn't out, not out of print, but it was nobody had it. Um, book deposit, if you didn't have it, thanks, Roberts. You there, Kimmy? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I thought, I thought I heard somebody saying they couldn't hear me. So Book Depository didn't have it. Um, Angus and Robinson didn't have it. Uh, I, I rang every bookstore in my town to see if they had it. And one of them said they had it on order. They had two other people that had asked for it. And I just said, have you been able to get it? And they said, well, we've got it on order. So I found out who the publisher was, and the publisher was Magabala Books, M-A-G-A-B-A-L-A, and they're out of Broome. So I rang them and I said, do you have any Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, in print? And, and they said that they had a couple left and that was it. And I said, could I please have one? So I ordered it then and there. Um, they sent it to me and I started reading it on the Saturday and I finished it on the Sunday. And it's one of those books that have the ability to turn your whole world upside down, to change your consciousness about what you are doing in your environment, in, your, in everything. So let me give you a brief of the book and then I would like to read um, his summation of what we need to learn as a result of him studying this book or, or writing this book. So Bruce uh, Pascoe wrote the book Dark Emu, Black Seeds is the subtitle, Agriculture or Accident. And with his research, and he researched the Australian um, explorers' journals, he actually went to the journals and he read the, their journals. So he read Mitchell and Sturt and Stewart and, and um, Streslecki and he, he went and he read them all. And he, he read their first accounts of their first impression of seeing the Australian Aboriginal. And we have always been taught, and mark me if I'm wrong, you two, but I was always taught, and Kim, you're probably not taught this because you're a Kiwi, but we were always taught that the Australian Aboriginals were hunter-gatherers and that there was no form of agriculture whatsoever on the Australian landscape. But when you read Bruce Pascoe's books and when you, um, or his, his book Dark Emu and, and his, what he reads in the journals, what is actually the truth is that they were sophisticated, peaceful agriculturalists that uh, not only manipulated their seeds, planted their seeds, stored their seeds and cooked their seeds and grains and yams and, and everything else, but they were also redirected rivers. They had fishing um, 
this amazing way of fishing. Like when you read this book, you just start to realise the lies that we've been told. And Bruce Pascoe basically says the reason we've been lied to is that when the colonists came, they knew that they could displace hunter-gatherers because they had no claim on the land. But they, but to displace agriculturalists normally would be this um, war. And in actual fact, a war was um, taken out on the Australian Aboriginal and their lands were taken and their crops were destroyed by the sheep. The They were murdered, they were killed uh, and... Many of the many of the journals talk about coming upon places where there were fields of of grain and stalks that have been stacked and places where things have been stored. Um, so many of the journals talked about this, and they talked about towns of five thousand and stone cottages and and all of this amazing agricultural society. And do you know that that they, that he says in his book that the Australian Aboriginal were the only peaceful agriculturalists on the on the on the planet that they knew of, and that they had been agriculturalists for at least 40, 45,000 years. They had been making bread. In actual fact, Sturt talks about his first visit to um, a town in on the Sturt Stony Desert where he was offered roast duck. And cake. So we've we've not we were not taught this. We were not told this. But what I think is the most powerful thing about this book, you know me, I love anthropology. I love archaeology. I love um, culture and tradition. I love this. I, I love hunter gatherers. I love this whole thing. And what this book did for me was that. I've never really agreed with the whole grain thing that we shouldn't be eating grain and that we've only been eating grain for 10,000 years, whereas they have taken the Australian Aboriginal and realised that they've been eating grain for possibly forty to 45,000 years to perhaps even 160,000 years. And so this this whole thing was I always loved um that grain was a part of our um, civilization, but um, this just turns everything upside down. And I'd love—I don't know if Lauren Cordain has read this book or knows about this amazing um, information, but I would love him to read it and and hear his take on the information that grain at for the Australian Aboriginal was a big part of their diet, as was yams, as was seeds, and but they prepared it properly. They prepared it in such a way that the anti-nutrients weren't going to cause a problem. They didn't use Roundup. They didn't use all those things. But I just, um, you're all very quiet. The two of you are very quiet. Yeah. What do you think? Well, well that's pretty amazing. <laughs> just listening intently. Yeah, I think it's I think it's quite a fascinating conversation about you know looking back to what our Aboriginals did. Um, I'm and I'm South African, so it really um, is fascinating to me in terms of where I come from. I grew up in South Africa until I was seven, and then came out here. And when I look at the um, the the blacks in South Africa. 
their diet was corn. But and it's, it's, it's interesting because as you're talking about it, Cindy, I'm thinking back to that. My dad wrote the most amazing book about the contrast between the black and the white um, and it was through a time of apartheid. And it was at that point that the whites infiltrated the blacks into such an, such an extent um, that they gave them corn because corn was cheap, they could grow a lot of it, it meant that, you know, they, they had enough energy to work in the fields and do all the things that the white people needed them to do. Um, but I never investigated what they ate before the white people gave them the corn. And you just sparked it for me now to, to go back and do some investigating on that because I think that's a fascinating, fascinating inquiry as to what really was there. Because when I grew up, they were all, drink, they were all eating mini meal um, and pop and gravy, which is maize. Um, corn meal. So, so are you it, saying it, it, is that is that, is, yeah. that a, is that something that is wrong, or is it something that? No, I don't know. No, I, I don't know. And I, and I'm just saying, like Cindy's, you know, with 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 the book, Cindy's sparking a, a thought process for me because I've always, you know, when I think back to my heritage, I, I think back with such sadness about what the whites did to the blacks and the oppression and the apartheid, and that was, you know, while I was there. And that makes me really, really sad. Now I look at the pendulum has swung completely the other way um, in South Africa, and it's now, you know, the whites are very oppressed. But I think in, in some cases the pendulum's got to swing to both extremes potentially before it finds balance. But it never occurred to me to look at, from a dietary perspective, how that had impacted the health and well-being of those that had had a more um, living on the land way of being, because that's exactly what they did. You know, the Zulu tribes, the Maasai, you know, the Maasai's, the the the, you know, there's lots of them with different names, but um, the, the ways they pastoralists, they were nomadic pastoralists um, or semi-nomadic, um, right. as were the the Himbas. Um, you know, and they did have, they do have plots of corn. I didn't know where that came from. You know, when I was in Namibia, they yeah. uh, they did have corn that they grew, um, but they were also semi-nomadic. Um, but, yeah, look, but it's what, what I'm I'd like to ask you. Sorry. Sarah, yeah. I just wanted to ask you. Um, it seems very weird. Like when I think about um, us as human beings today and on this planet here and now, if for some reason there was a fast or a problem with food or we couldn't get, you know, I'm just hypothetically putting it out there, my instinctive behavior would be to what could I grow or what could I create that would have an ongoing lasting effect. Now, my thoughts are definitely that I would want to settle and at least be able to grow in a plot. And even though Aboriginals and probably many tribal cultures were nomadic, they can't have been nomadic every single day of every single moment of their lives. Surely there must have been almost more seasonal behaviours where um, you would be settled for a bit and you would need to rest and recuperate. 
is 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 it really that naive to think that the Aboriginals were hunter gatherers for for generations and and if not thousands of years? When really it's quite a natural instinctive behaviour in order to grow. I only have to think about myself even growing flipping herbs in my garden. How proud I feel! I'm imagining that those that sense of pride and sense of um, being able to grow and feed or family and things like that surely is also triggered from a very um, old ancient core human belief and value system is is am I off the mark here no I don't think so but what happened in Europe is that uh, when agriculturalists started war started because people wanted lands. They didn't know how to um, stop people thieving the food that they had. So there were wars that started. They wanted more land to produce more food or grain in order to, um, you know, feed or have power. That was what happened in agriculture. The difference between um, the Europeans and what we now understand about the Australian Aboriginal was that they could walk away from their land. But because they had social and environmental consciousness um, and they had a, a love for all humanity that was on, on the continent, they could walk away from their land and know that no one would steal their food. They, When they fished, they knew the right ones to take so that the people that were down the river stream a little bit could have their take as well. They didn't take at all. They were... Like, you know, like Bruce Pascoe talks about, they were one of the only agriculturalists that lived a peaceful life and could walk away from their crops as they grew, go get food elsewhere. They could store their food in places uh, that no one else would take. And Bruce Pascoe says if only our forefathers could have come and learnt how they did this, it would have been far better for the world than what we did in absolutely decimating what they had. And I I think that this is why I brought this book up, is that we were talking about toothpaste and we were talking about, I know this sounds like a far cry, (laughs) but we were talking about toothpaste and we were talking about what we're putting down our sinks. We're not thinking socially and environmentally anymore. We're just throwing it down. We think it's going to go into sewage, but where does the sewage go? It ends up on our land. It ends up in our waterways. And I think if more and more people start to become socially and environmentally conscious of about their fellow man and about the land beside them, then perhaps we will see this peace in, in agriculture and we will start using our native grains. You know, they had wild barley, they had banadu, they had a wild oat, they had yams, they had many species that were able to survive without the water that we need for our crops. You know, many of our monocultures are absolutely thirsty crops and a lot of the water rights are being bought up by multinational companies companies because they know the farmers are relying on the water so then the farmer has to buy the water through the water rights and and I just I like I like go come on we've got to stop this craziness uh and we can't stop it on a global level we can't even stop it on a community level but what we can do is we can stop it on an individual level 
we can actually start to consider what we're throwing down our drains and our sinks. We can actually consider what we're putting on our gardens and, and how we choose to use electricity and, and how we um, maybe choose to do solar. And that brings me full circle back to my 60 acres. Do I do what the traditional American and traditional Englishmen do or is there something that somebody um, can help me with to um, create um, a 60-acre pocket of food that is, that is of this land not bought in? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing. See, and I love the way I love when we have these conversations. More importantly, these conversations aren't just about um, three girls having a, having a chat. It's when you girls, when either of you go rabbit holy on this, on either of your preferred or certainly much experienced topics, the thing that you've always triggered whenever you go down this path, Cindy, is not necessarily what we can do on a global level and, and where a lot of us think, oh, well, it, it's only me, it doesn't make a difference or oh, what does it matter if I use this plastic bag or this toothpaste or this um, buy my herbs here or buy from the supermarket as opposed to the, the, the local farmer's markets. I think what happens is when we really start tapping into, when we really start listening to the real core of what you're talking about here, and that is on our everyday choices, being mindful around what it is that we're doing and being mindful of is there a greater choice I could make here or is there something that would suit my planet better, I just know that just something as simple as oil pulling, which I know is where this conversation started, is yeah. is actually a very ancient Ayurvedic ritual, which, the, you know, and I'm sure many cultures have used things like this. I mean, you can't tell me the Africans, Karen, went through with a buildup of plaque on their teeth that caused dental decay and the issue of having wisdom teeth withdrawn. Their bodies evolved over time and they would have come up with certain herbs or things that they chewed on or certain foods or vegetables yeah. or fruits. They used ash. Ash, ash from the fires. This this is where we start going, are we that removed from what we think is modern civilization? When I start looking at the damage and the absolute travesty of major problems we're creating through raping and pillaging the land and the animals and everything, I just wonder if something as simple as oil, <laughs> as simple as oil pulling, just makes you mindful around where you're going to buy your next product. Be it your toothpaste, deodorant, be it your fresh fruit and vegetables, be it buying from a local organic farmer, being how you prepare it. I mean, you know, I've got, I've had people staying all weekend, and I went to the markets on Saturday and got our beautiful food and got our amazing products from the from the from the markets and I ordered a beautiful big leg of of lamb now I'm not a lamb eater but the lady that told me knew the farmer that had grown these animals and it was apparently um, very well looked after, very well loved animal. And this morning with my brother, we put rosemary from my garden into the um, into the actual um, 
lamb, and I know this is sounding horrible probably to you, Kaz, but it was the ritual of standing there with my brother, putting garlic that we'd got from the locally organic markets into the ham, putting anchovies, which is a um, which is a, a Jamie Oliver recipe. Get out my slow cooker. I've now put it into the big stainless steel slow cooker, and these guys will have this for dinner tonight after eight hours of slow cooking. Uh, the joy of, and, and I don't even eat it, but the joy of where I got it from, what we did with it, how we've now put it together, the fact that I made it with my brother, the fact that my family will be eating it all tonight around the table, just, I don't know, am I sounding weird, you know, kind of going along this path, but it's those kind of things that make you feel really mindful or a present or aware of what the choices are that we make in order to feed and survive and, and look after ourselves. Mm. Yeah. And when you look at it, Kenny, food is probably the single most important thing that makes the world revolve around. And I, I saw a beautiful quote, Casey sent it to me from New Zealand actually, and it goes like this, and it's from a gentleman by the name of Aaron McLean. And he said, the penny drop for me, that food is seen as this really benign and irrelevant thing. But it's actually everything. And it pertains to every aspect of life on this planet. The environment, politics, economics, health, well-being, preservation of culture. Food is pretty much the single most important issue. And when you become, and, I, and this is me speaking now, when you become conscious about the way your food is produced, where you're getting it from uh, and how you are then preparing it and then nourishing and nurturing your family, then I think that you have a huge part to play in the social and environmental consciousness that needs to begin um, in a very, very enormous way at this point. But I think it's just about we can do this. And I invite anybody who's listening to us to start to change one thing at a time, one habit at a time, and start to source your food from producers that you know where your food is coming from and realise that you are having an impact on the world in the political arena, the environmental arena, economically, your own health and well-being, the preservation of cultures and traditions. And uh, I think that if we, you know, do this, then you can make a change. But to think that we can change the world, I think, is uh, is a tough, tough slog. But to know that you can change yourself is an easy slog. We can do it. It's not even a slog. It's actually exciting. You know, I listened to you, Kim, just then talk about your love of the markets and picking your rosemary and, you know, doing things like that. It is. It's just one of those amazing things that you do every Saturday morning, as do I, 6 a.m. I'm there. And collecting and gathering everything and then realising my fridge is absolutely full. And, you know, I'm not there 100%, not by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that if we just do something different every week that takes us that little bit further to uh, helping ourselves and then, and then for it, it helping others. Mm. And I'm reminded mm. right now of a young girl who has um, – a very big social reach on social media and she was a vegan and um, 22 years of age and um, her family 
uh, posted over the weekend that she had departed this planet and gone. Um, she'd had a battle with depression and they urged everybody to seek um, help if they, you know, had this problem. And, and I, I cannot, I do not know what was going on in her head. I have no idea, but I do know this. And, and I'm not doing this against you, Karen, but I do know that the vegan lifestyle for young women can be a lifestyle that is to save the babes in the woods, but they're hurting their own health because they've failed to do it right. And veganism is not about giving up um, animals and animal products. It's about having a whole new way of eating and to prepare your foods properly and to make sure you are nourishing your brain and your nervous system and your digestive tract with the right foods. So many of these young girls, and I can't tell you that this was this young girl. I don't know anything about it, but it, I think it's important that we we talk about this issue, is that so many young girls just go, well, I'm just going to give up animals. <laughs> But continue to eat poorly produced foods um, laced with chemicals, refined with additives, preserves and flavorings because it has the vegan, um, you know, badge on it. Um, so be very careful of those things as well, I think. It's, um, we can't save the babies in the wood if we can't save ourselves. We must save ourselves, I believe, first and have that environmental and social consciousness in order to save the babies in the woods. I love it. Yeah, I think, you know, coming to the end of the podcast, I think, um, Cindy, that, you know, ultimately it's a, it's, a, it's a way of, it's a way of existing, really. And I think that for far too long, for far too many, we have lived in a state of unconsciousness where we don't make decisions consciously. We don't choose consciously. We just choose obliviously because everybody's doing the same thing or there's a movement or there's, um, you know, there's pressure, whatever it is. I remember smoking, you know, when I was younger, smoking was the thing to do, so I just started smoking. You know, it wasn't something that I did because I consciously investigated it and checked it out and decided, yep, smoking looks like it could be the healthiest choice for me. You know, obviously it's, it, it, it wasn't, but it, it, just, it just speaks volumes to the way that we walk about our lives completely unaware of what's going on around us. And, of course, we're all going to have different things that we're interested in which drive the things that we research and I think that anybody listening to this show, certainly, one thing I know hands down, you are interested in food. You are interested in movement and health and well-being, and you are interested in the stuff and the matter that goes on between your two ears. So, you know, be an example for everybody else that's around you as to what you do. Don't live an unconscious life. And I couldn't agree with Cindy more when it comes to, you know, um, and, and just speaking about being vegan. I couldn't agree with Cindy more purely because I was vegan when I was young and I simply replaced meat with bread and pasta and became really sick because I didn't know how to do it. This time round, 
I'm in a constant state of research and I'm still figuring it out. And at the end of the day, I'm always going to be figuring out, figure, figuring it out. And I think that's the journey that everybody really should be on. We should be in a constant state of figuring it out. Because if you think about it, even people who are meat eaters, if they're eating meat unconsciously, the damage that is being caused to the planet from an agricultural perspective and the disharmony and the disease that they're ingesting from animals that are killed in the most inhumane way, that in and of itself needs to be investigated and put a stop to. So I think for all of us, we've all got to be very, very conscious of what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, and taking great responsibility for the footprint that we leave on this planet because we all live here together. It's a coexistence in an ecology that requires every part of every one of us to synergistically participate in the most profound way, in the most aware and the most conscious way. We can't afford to be oblivious about anything. So I'm on a bit of a roll right now, but I'm just saying it's up for everybody to be responsible. It's up for everybody to really get a wake-up call because the planet needs us and we need each other and we need to be in harmony with everything and everyone around us. You don't have to look too far to see that we're imploding. Just got to open your door and turn on your news, you know, and, and to hear that there's a there's a young girl who's passed away um, due to depression. I mean, really? I mean, really? That's something that we can definitely do something about. So go ahead. Do your oil pulling. <laughs> do your oil pulling i'm gonna i will not give up i won't i mean i will gag and i will vomit around the house but i will not give up i will keep going (laughs) yeah i think it's so it's so important you know if you think about every being and every creation on this planet we are the only ones given the gift of consciousness and given the gift of the ability to make conscious choice, informed choice, we're the only ones given the gift of awareness. We can know what we're doing. We can make decisions for the betterment of one another and for the planet. And it's time. We extract our digit from our one freckle and we start to take the major responsibility and also look at the people around us and potentially start looking at how other people are taking responsibility as well and maybe we can enlighten some others who, you know, are still oblivious. Hopefully, hopefully. We live in hope, hey? Yeah. There you go. It was amazing. There's up for a chat another week. <laughs> You're incredible. I loved your summer. I mean, I was thinking for a while there, kids, my gosh, you haven't had a lot to say really. And as we started this whole conversation because you said you can't <laughs> handle oil pulling and look where it went. Um, but then your summary is so beautifully articulated and right. so beautifully um, rounded. And I think that's what I love about our conversations, gorgeous ones, is that it's never just about pulling with oil. It never is. It's, no, it's never just about calling Kimmy, never. So on that note, <laughs> you had to say that, didn't you? I had to finish it. What's happened to me? <laughs> okay, so you know what, next week you have to tell us how you went. Yes. Okay, I will. Okay. I promise. Okay, every day. Hey, I promise. 
Every day. In fact, every, everybody listening to this, the the whole challenge for seven days until next week's podcast is that you must oil pull. Now, they reckon the best time to do it is in the morning, I'm telling you, but it doesn't matter when you do it in the day. So, But it's a, but they say that they feel the best time is morning. So who, I reckon we should all be up for it, and I reckon anyone should write their comment on the Facebook that they're going to become an, an OPA, an oil puller, Excellence within the next seven days. Are we all up for it, Kaz? Well, well, let, well let's call it the OPC Oil Pulling Challenge. There we go. <laughs> all right, there you go. I love the it. The OPC. If you're in on the OPC, do it. I love it. <laughs> and then you can all be my PIC, my partners in crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're gorgeous. Oh, bless. Well, hopefully you guys have loved today's podcast. It's been an absolute blast. We've gone down lots of different rabbit holes and lots of different directions, and it's been a fabulous conversation. So make sure that you do go to our Facebook page at all the w's.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat and be an OPCer. Yoo-hoo. You can also post your comments and your questions at all the w's.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat. And we're going to see you here right here next week. Same time, same station right here on Up For A Chat, where you get to become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world and pulling the oil. Bye for now, everybody. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.